Yes. Hi, Dean. Thank you, man. I love you. <laughs> All right. Matthew 26 is where we are today. And we've been in Matthew 26 for a while. Uh, there's a lot in this chapter. And so we've been taking it in small chunks. Uh, just not wanting to rush through anything. And if you remember, chapter 26 is where we see a change. So it's where Jesus goes from teaching the crowds and dealing with the, the religious leaders uh, to now being very focused on what's next. The cross is ahead of him. And, and for me, man, I just can picture this in, in a, such a cinematic way every time I get to this part of any of the Gospels, that the intensity is just growing and growing and growing. In fact, in my own head, I hear like a ticking clock. The cross is so close at this point. And, and Jesus understands that, and nobody else does. So even as he's speaking to his disciples, and he's telling them about these things, and he's warning them, the, the intense things that he's telling them are just bouncing off their foreheads. Now, what we've seen so far in chapter 26, um, we see the plot of the religious leaders to kill Jesus, we see Mary in that beautiful act of worship as she broke the alabaster flask on, on Jesus and anointed him. Judas makes an agreement with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And we talked about how that 30 pieces of silver kind of is really proof in itself it wasn't about the money. 30 pieces of silver, even in that day, was not very much. That there was no bartering that took place. There was no, it was just, that's what they offered, which was the lowest price of a the lowest valued slave in the market was 30 pieces of silver. And so that was their low ball price, and he went, okay. And, and those things tell us that there was something, it was something else that, that Judas thought he was going to get out of this. We know it was greed, but we don't know if it was greed from power or money or, or prestige, whatever it might be. And then uh, we see the Passover meal, the Last Supper with Jesus and the disciples. And Jesus gives the real meaning of Passover. And this is, this is, I think it's important. I think it's amazing because for the, the Jewish nation, the Passover celebration was the most important of the year. It was the most intense. It was the most, the, everybody wanted to be in Jerusalem. And, and Jesus takes this meal and he doesn't give it new meaning. What he does is say, this is what it's always been about. That everything that happened in Egypt and everything that happened with Israel was all a picture of what's about to take place now. This bread has always been my body. This cup of wine has always been a picture of my blood. So Jesus isn't giving symbols to, to the Passover. He's saying that he is the reality of what Passover is all about. And now, again... The intensity continues. They've left the upper room. They're on their way through the city to the garden. And again, I just hear the ticking clock. You know, and there are, you know when you have a trial or something major that's on the horizon, or you know it's coming, it cannot be avoided. And it might be even something that's just a change of life, your new job, you're moving, or whatever it is. There's an intensity about before it hits. You know, we call it pregame jitters or whatever it is that, that it's, it's on the horizon coming towards you. Once it hits, it's different because you're like, well, I'm in it now. 
But before it gets there, for me, it is the most intense part. And that's what I believe we see today. This intense overwhelming that even Jesus himself is going to go through a very hard time because the storm is almost upon him. But it's not upon him yet. Now, as uh, Judas has made these arrangements, he is getting ready to meet Jesus with these people, with the, the crowd, the mob, there in the garden. For me, that's when the ticking clock stops. That's when the storm hits, when, when Judas shows up. And that's when it's really on. So let's pray, and we're going to be starting today in verse 31. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much just for the power that's in your word. And though we have read this section of scripture many times, and we have considered what you may have gone through, Lord, give us new ears to hear, new eyes to see, and a new heart to receive what you want to teach us today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd have your way in us and in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 31 of chapter 26, it says, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus answered him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. Now, again, Jesus knows how close these things are. He knows that it's right upon him almost. But the disciples don't get it. And we got to remember that in Jesus' day, there was a lot of debate and confusion about the role of the Messiah. And we've talked about that before. That there were those that believed that the Messiah was going to be a conquering hero, greater than King David. And that he would roll onto the scene, he'd overthrow the Romans, and then go out and really take over the world. And they would look to the scriptures in the Old Testament that spoke of him ruling with a rod of iron, and that his reign would be everlasting. But then there are the other scriptures that spoke of the Messiah and his suffering. And his death and his sorrow. And this was hugely confusing. Because how could it be both? How could one Messiah be both the ruling, reigning king and the suffering Messiah that would give his life? Some even believe there must be two Messiahs, one that would rule, one that would die. But nobody understood. And again, including the disciples. The disciples were still looking for Jesus at any moment to rule and reign, to take over. So much so that we even see it after he raises from the dead. I mean, after all of that, after the cross and the burial and his resurrection, what's their first question? At this time, will you establish your kingdom? That's what they're asking. And so Jesus is trying to tell them, 
ahead of time, guys, things are about to go really bad. And you need to know that I'm in control. And you need to know that this is what Scripture says. All these things are done according to the Scriptures. And I believe that a lot of what he's saying to them, and even his time in the garden, is letting them know that all of this, it will seem out of control, chaotic, the crazy will of man being enforced on him, but they need to know that it is all under his control. And it's all happening, just as the Scriptures had said it would. But it's some heavy stuff. And again, he's putting this information on them. Verse 31, he says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight. I think it's a little bit strange for us because the word stumble or the King James, I think, renders it as you'll be offended uh, because of me. And stumble and offended kind of gives us that idea of a mistake or misunderstanding. The idea, though, in, in the original language or the original phrase is to cause separation. That all of you are going to make a choice to be separated from me, is what Jesus is telling them. And the choice is important. Again, this isn't a misunderstanding. It's not a mistake. It's not that they just kind of lose their way. It is a clear choice of separation. And this must have shocked. Well, it does shock them. I mean, you you see Peter's response. You see the other's response because he's telling them, all of you are going to choose to leave me tonight. Now, again, from their perspective, perspective, things have been going well. Jesus has gotten a great welcome there in Jerusalem. And though Jesus is continually talking about his death and, and the things that are coming, his betrayal, uh, they've seen some great things. But Jesus tells them uh, these things and then quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, where, it says, where he says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Here's the other thing. Not only does Jesus, is Jesus telling them, you guys are all going to abandon me tonight. You're going to choose to leave. It's going to be at the worst possible time because the shepherd will be struck. It isn't when Jesus is at a high point. It isn't when Jesus is doing fine. It's that he will be attacked by the enemy, and their response is to run. Again, this is a lot. These are the guys that have been with Jesus for three and a half years that have been like, no, we're here for you. We're, and I believe that they really meant that. You know, Peter says that, and the rest of them follow, and I don't believe that they were lying at all, but they simply didn't understand all that was going on. Now, Jesus hits him with these huge truths. First, you're going to abandon me. It's going to be when I am struck. And then after these very hard truths, he gives this great promise. But after I have raised. And so he's giving this little encapsulation, but again, I think the first two things they heard were so overwhelming that they didn't catch the third, or they couldn't process the third. You're going to abandon me. I'm going to be attacked and arrested. But don't worry about it, because I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're still like, we're going to leave you? Us? Who are you talking about? You know? and, and, so, and we've all been in those conversations. Somebody hits you with the bad news first, and you're like, what? And they're like, but the good news is, and it's just blah, 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 blah. Because you're still thinking about the bad news. Again, Jesus is telling him this, but it's to let him know, guys, it's under my control. These aren't just random events that are going to happen. These aren't things that are being done to Jesus, and he has no choice about it. He's letting him know, 
I know exactly what's happening next, and I'm allowing myself to enter into it. Now, remember the Last Supper when Jesus tells them that one of the twelve, one of the ones that had dipped their hand in the bowl with him would betray him. And there's this brief little glimpse from the disciples, this moment of humility where each one of them goes, Lord, is it I? And I love that because there's this point where they realize, yeah, it could be me. Is there something I'm going to do that's going to betray you? And I'm not even aware of it. And it's such a great place that they were in, but that, that's over now. <laughs> because instead of going, Lord, is it I? Am I going to be one of the ones to run away and admit that they have that weakness? They're like, nope, not me. They don't humble themselves. And I believe that's what Jesus is telling them here. He's not just laying this on them going, well, you guys are going to do it anyway. It doesn't really matter. He wants them to prepare their hearts for what's ahead. He wants them to be aware of their own personal weakness so they might pray against it. But instead, they argue with Jesus. And I think we miss that sometimes when we read through this section Jesus is saying, look, guys, this is what you're going to do. And they're like, nuh-uh. And he's like, uh, yeah, huh? And, and there's this, like, argument back and forth. And you, then you have to stop and think, do they know who they're arguing with? <laughs> All-knowing God, right? And, and they're going, yeah, you don't really, you don't know. And I wish I didn't understand the disciples in this moment, but unfortunately how often I do the same thing, right? The Holy Spirit says, uh, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't say that. And I'm like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> I got this. And then later, like, okay, that was a big deal. I, I should have listened, right? And, and the disciples, I think, are laying that example for us of what not to do. And, man, when we hear that draw of the Holy Spirit, when we hear that warning, and we know the difference. It's sometimes hard to discern between our own fears and our doubts and second-guessing. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is in there and we're not quite sure how. But I think when we take time to pray through those things and consider and, and get in the Scriptures, then, then He's able to speak to us. And, and we don't want to make the same mistake where we start arguing with Him on what we should or should not do. Peter even takes the opportunity to boast a little bit. In verse 33, he says, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I love Peter. I just get him so much. You know? And I believe his heart's in the right place, right? He wants to be brave, and he wants to be there for Jesus. And he's trying to tell Jesus, I've got your back no matter what. And I believe he's, he's as honest as he can be about that. But what he's not being honest about is his own weakness. Though Jesus has told him, told all of them, he's not being honest about his own weakness. Now, who's Peter talking about when he says all? It's not the generic, even if all of mankind were to abandon you, I will not. The all are the disciples. <laughs> okay, I get it. These guys, yeah, probably. But not me, Jesus, right? So he's putting himself above the other 11 or 10 that are probably there now, going, yeah, I, I can see that. John, sure, absolutely. Um, but Jesus, not me. I got you, man. I'm there for you. And Jesus tells him, surely I say to you that this night, 
before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. First of all, the word assuredly is, is stronger than we make it. In, in the Greek language, the way that it's put is, this is an absolute, unshakable truth. Peter, the thing that I'm telling you now is guaranteed. And again, this is coming from all-knowing, almighty God. You will deny me three times. Again, I think that must have just rocked Peter. Again, he's trying. He's trying to be brave. He's trying to be strong. And Jesus goes, Peter, not only are you going to fail with everybody else, you're going to fail greater than all of them. You're going to fall farther. You're going to make greater mistakes than the other 11 that you just threw under the bus or under the cart, I guess would have been. Again, Peter just doubles down, man. He is not going to hear it. No, absolutely not. That's never going to happen. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples are like, yeah, me too. Right? <laughs> and again, I get what they're saying. Man, I, I just, I so hear their heart. They want to be there for Jesus the way he's been there for them. It's just not in them. They, their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. Just as he'll say to Peter in just a little bit. Right? And anytime that we are relying on our strength, our wisdom, our ability, our bravery, we are in the exact same spot. Lord, I would never do that. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> How much better for us to humbly submit ourselves under the cross and go, Lord, I need you. I need your strength. I don't have it myself. Those are the words, actually, that led me to the Lord. That when Candy and I were in pre-marriage counseling, we had been going to this little church. I was still just a total heathen. And... Uh, and we went to pre-marriage counseling, and the pastor told me, he said, look, Jack, I know you want to be a good man. I know you want to be a good husband, and someday you want to be a good father. But i got to tell you, it simply is not in you. <laughs> and he was right. That idea, that understanding of wanting something but not having the ability to accomplish it, that was the first time it became so clear. And he goes, and this is why you need Jesus. This is why you need Jesus in your heart, because he's able. And he can fill in all the weakness that you have with his strength. And he can provide all the things that you need that you now lack. And you will lack for the rest of your life if you don't accept him in your life. And I was like, okay. And I prayed right there to, to receive the Lord, right? Even after salvation, though, how good are we at just going back to our own strength, our own ability, our own wisdom, Right? Staying in that place of humility, staying before our amazing Savior, being honest about our weakness. The disciples here are lacking that humility. They will not receive the warning. And as we will see, they're running because of that straight towards failure. Not me, Lord. I'd never do that. I'll, no way. I'm, I'm with you to the end. Instead of admitting it, they are just running right towards their own failure. And I think we'll also see that because of relying in their own strength and relying in their own ability, 
there's a direct link. And I wish I could somehow explain this. I wanted to try and like make this really super clear. But you guys just pray through this and consider it. I think there's a direct link here and in our lives that when we're relying in our own strength, refusing to humble ourselves in that area of weakness, whatever it might be, the result of it, as we'll see with the disciples, is a lack of interest in prayer and a lack of urgency for the importance of prayer. Because that's right what's going to happen next is Jesus takes them to this place of an important time of prayer, and they just can't seem to find the energy. So verse 36 goes on. It says, And then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here a while while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, the second time, he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus takes them into the garden, and uh, he leaves most of them in one group, and then he separates the three with him, Peter, James, and John. And we see that a lot in the Scriptures, um, that Jesus, for some reason, had Peter, James, and John with him other times when the other disciples weren't there. Mount of Transfiguration being one of them, and there are others. And some people think, well, it's because that's the inner circle, because, you know, these were guys that Jesus really got or ministered to, um, or that they were going to be leaders of the church. And, well, that's true of two of them. James would be taken out almost immediately uh, when the church gets started. But whatever the reason, I tend to think maybe it's because they were the troublemakers, <laughs> right? Like the kids that get called to sit in the front of the class, that was always me. Jack, come and sit by my desk is what the teacher would say. And I'm like, Ugh. wasn't because I was their favorite, right? But whatever the reason, Peter, James, and John are asked to go with Jesus. Um, and there's some guesses of, of why that might have been in this case. But first of all, in verse 38, it says, uh, Jesus said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Exceedingly sorrowful, again, the, the original phrase is the idea of the greatest measure possible. It doesn't just mean kind of sad. It doesn't mean a little depressed. It means the absolute maximum amount of sorrow that the body can contain. 
And what's interestingly or interesting about that is in Luke 22, where he records the same thing. Luke says, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, we know now that this is a, a condition that people go into, and it is literally at the point of death. From the maximum amount of stress that the human body can take, it begins to sweat drops of blood. And so when Jesus says that he is exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death, that is not an exaggeration. That is right where he is at. That the sorrow of what is about to take place has him on the very verge of death itself. And I believe that he didn't just take the three there as company or as comfort. I suppose that definitely could be part of it because this is a, a very hard time that Jesus is facing here. I think one of the other reasons that they were there is that though they were drifting in and out of sleep, they were the witnesses of Jesus there in the garden. And I believe the Holy Spirit would speak to them later and piece this whole story back together that we would then have the, the view that they did. When they were able to say, yeah, he came three times and maybe one was asleep and another one was awake, but they pieced it all together accurately by the power of the Holy Spirit that we could see Jesus in this place of suffering. And to me, this is, in some ways, is even more intense than the cross. Now, I don't understand all that Jesus had to go through on the cross, but this was the point where Jesus is asking his Father for any other way. And there's a lot of importance to that. Again, knowing that these events, once they start, once Judas arrives there in the garden, the events cannot be stopped after that point. So if there is any other way, it has to be now. And he prays, O my Father, in verse 39, if it is possible that this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but you will, as you will. The cup of his suffering. It's the price that was paid to redeem all mankind, to pay for all the sins of every person that has ever existed in the entire history of the world or future of the world. It would require him to suffer. And very often what we, all we think about or what we think of mostly is the suffering of the physical pain upon the cross. And it was, I can't imagine the intensity of that. The nails, even before that, the whipping and the beating and the crucifixion itself is intense. But I believe that it was nothing compared to the spiritual anguish that none of us can, can understand. That God, the eternal Father, and God, the eternal Son, who had been in absolute communion with one another throughout all of history, were going to be separated by something so ugly as the sin of mankind. And people will argue and say, well, there's no way that God can be separated from himself. Jesus paid our price, and that is the price of sin, the separation from God. I don't know what else it could be. He is absolutely cut off from his Father. And he's saying, if there's any other way, if there's any other way possible, now, again, there's a couple things that I think are important. One, and these are going to be a little bit of rabbit trails, but I think they're important ones. 
The first thing that I find here that's important for us to understand in our own personal lives and application is this is a great example of prayer. There are those who would say, if you pray hard enough, long enough, with enough faith, God will give you whatever you ask for. There's a big problem with that. Because no one has ever had more faith than Jesus. No one has ever prayed a better prayer than Jesus. No one has ever deserved more blessing or favor than Jesus. And yet he prays that there would be another way, and the answer is no. And that's good for us to remember <laughs> that it's okay for God to say no. And that it's not your fault because you didn't pray it loud enough, because you didn't pray it with enough faith. He knows your heart. He's not looking for magic words. And we need to hear no. The second, again, unrelated but important, but the second one is, is that very popular idea, all roads lead to heaven. Believe whatever you want to believe as long as you're sincere and you will go to heaven. That's all God cares about. Wrong. Because here Jesus is saying if there is any other way, just one other way than this cup of suffering for mankind to be saved, let's do that. And there was none. It required God Almighty, perfect, holy, and eternal, to leave his throne in heaven, to become one of us, to pay the price I owe. It's the only way forgiveness happens. It's the only way the doors of heaven are open. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the fact that not one other way exists, this is the proof of it. Because that's all Jesus is asking for. Any other way. And there was none. It had to be the cup of his suffering. Jesus is the only way anyone can be saved. It isn't good teaching. It isn't learning about loving each other. It isn't learning about forgiveness. It's that our price had to be paid by the shedding of, of perfect, innocent blood. Now, Jesus is, is in his back-and-forth prayer time with his heavenly Father. And each time he comes to the disciples and they're asleep. And like I said, I think part of that we go, I can look at it and go, they're not taking them, the warning seriously. Because if they were, if they were like, Jesus said we're going to betray him tonight and that we need to pray so we don't enter into that temptation. They would have been alert. They would have taken it seriously and been, all right, yeah, I'm going to stand. I'll drink a couple more cups of coffee. What do I need to do, you know, to be alert, to pray so I don't fall into that temptation. And again, I believe that was the main point of Jesus' warning wasn't to say, okay, so that you guys will stay awake and keep me company. He knew that their time of trial was upon them as well and that they needed to prepare their hearts for it. And they're found sleeping. Now, again, I think it's easy to be too hard on the disciples and go, a bunch of lazy bums, you know? <laughs> Why weren't they doing something about it? But uh, looking at the other Gospels, uh, especially Luke, Luke tells us that, um, that they were sleeping from sorrow. And again, that there's this emotional roller coaster that they have been on. They've had the high of the triumphant entry, and they've had the amazing 
front seats for Jesus clearing the temple and, and the things that he's been doing and confronting the Pharisees and the, the, the joy of the people uh, around Jesus and then the anguish that they see in Jesus. Talking about his betrayal, talking about his death and all of these things. And so it's just been this up and down. And if you've, we've all been there in one way or another. You know, if you've been in a time of serious loss or you've been around people that have just had a huge tragedy in their life. When I was a police chaplain, I would go out sometimes two, three in the morning whenever the call came out, and I'd have to sit with people that just lost somebody. And it was, it was hard. It's exhausting because you can't help but let your heart break. Even though you can't understand everything that's going on, it's an emotional roller, roller coaster. And I believe that's part of what's going on with the disciples here, that they are exhausted and they're sleeping from sorrow. And then Jesus comes. And I, I like this. Again, I, Jesus doesn't show up. And he's, you could put like an angry tone on that if you wanted to, when he's like, are you still sleeping, <laughs> you lazy bumps? I don't think that's it at all. He's like, nope, it's okay, guys. But you got to get up because the hour's here. My betrayer is at hand. Time to wake up. Verse 47 And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, the great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot pray, and my, and my Father will provide me with more than 12,000 legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be thus? And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, How have you come out against, excuse me, how have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Like I said, when Judas shows up, in my head, that's when the ticking clock stops. This is that moment of intensity. All the sound of the world is drowned out. Just that high-pitched sound of adrenaline pumping. The storm is upon him at this point. But there is a great resolve. There's a huge contrast that we see from Jesus a few moments ago in the garden, praying that if there's any other way, but how did he end each one of those prayers? Not my will, but yours be done. And so now that no other way is provided, there's no doubt. This is the only way. This is my Father's will. And this resolve that we see in Jesus is unshakable from this point on. Another thing that stands out to me is after all of this, Judas shows up and... and you got to understand the huge slap in the face that this is. 
okay? This is the right words and action with the completely wrong motive. So for him to call him rabbi, great title of honor, and to give him that kiss was a sign of respect. It was to say, you are the greatest. And he's got this whole mob. He know, everybody knows why Judas is there. And I think this is the point that the disciples went, <gasps> Judas? You've got to be kidding me. So he gives Jesus this great sign of respect. And it's really, it's a mockery of it all. And, and even after all that, Jesus calls Judas friend. I think this is a great insight into Jesus' character. It's not sarcastic. Jesus is saying on my side of it, Judas, you are still my friend. I still love you. So much of what was said at that last supper was for Judas' benefit. No one else got it. It was Jesus saying, you don't have to be the one that betrayed me. But here he is. Still in the end, Jesus calling him friend. Verse 51 it tells us that suddenly one of those that was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, the other Gospels tell us absolutely that this is Peter. And this is no small thing for him to attack this mob. I believe that this is, Peter thought this was his defining moment. That he thought this was Je- what Jesus was talking about. Lord, hey, even if all these guys abandon you, not me, I'll die with you. And he pulls the sword and he takes a swing. There's a fine line between bravery and stupidity. It's kind of hard to tell what's going on here. I also noticed that he struck the one unarmed man (laughs) and missed, right? I don't think he was aiming for his ear. And so it's like, yeah, nice job, but you're a fisherman. You don't know what you're doing, you know? And Peter, thinking that, that he'd succeeded, he'd proven himself. See, I told you, I'm with you, Jesus. Whatever happened after that, oh, I'm with you. But then Jesus does not react the way that all of the disciples are hoping, including Judas, possibly, that they believe that this would be the moment where Jesus would be like, enough, and and rise up and take control and deal with these guys and then move on to Rome. And instead, Jesus just goes, go ahead and take me. And they're all like, what? And that's why they run. Because that is not what they thought he was going to do. And the other Gospels, again, it would be easy to sidetrack and look at all of the other Gospels and what they record. But Jesus has already shown his great authority when, in John where he says, I am he. And it drops the entire crowd. Just the power of his voice and the entire mob falls to the ground. Again, you can see why the disciples are like, oh, it is on. You know? <laughs> this is it. And then Jesus goes, okay, you can take me in. It is not what they thought was going to happen. Now, Jesus could have chosen another option. And I love the fact he makes it clear, hey, if I wanted to, I could call down 12 legions of angels. And again, in my head, what I picture is Michael and the other angels just standing on the edge of heaven, swords drawn, just waiting for Jesus to go, I changed my mind. And those guys would have been on the earth, and I think they would have obliterated all of mankind. Done. But instead, Jesus goes, I could do that, but I'm not going to. I'm going to drink the cup that has been set before me by my Father to save mankind. 
It is the only way to save us all. Now, again, looking at the disciples, you know, I think there's some great application for us here because what they thought was going to happen is not what's happening. Who they thought they were is not who they are. What they were hoping Jesus was going to accomplish, he has a very different plan. And for us, it can be very much the same way. We think we know what he's doing in our life. We think we know where he's taking us. And we might be absolutely wrong. We've got victory and success in our minds, and it might be failure and tragedy. But the good news is he's still the one in charge of it all. He doesn't change because my circumstances do. He doesn't change because I was wrong about the direction I was going. It was never the direction he was going. Coming back to his goodness, his power, and his love for us, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley of the shadow of death, he is still the same. He is still trustworthy. And our job is to humbly be before his feet and letting him have his way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we do pray that you would have your will in our lives and in this church. We submit ourselves to you. God, we confess our weakness, our failure, and our sin. Thank you that you are bigger than them all and that you bring healing, you bring forgiveness, and you choose to give out the good news of your love through people like us. God, help us to be good stewards of your good news, of who you are, and use us any way and every way that you want to this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.